Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that we would listen as Jesus speaks to us, that you would teach us through his words We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Forgive me, but I'm going to test your level of childhood trauma based on how you react when you hear these words. Just wait till your daddy gets home. Those are probably the most terrifying words my mother ever spoke. Just wait till your daddy gets home. Now, I wasn't afraid of my father coming home. I was worried about what he was bringing with him. He was bringing with him a reckoning. He was bringing with him judgment. And that made me terrified because all too often I knew I was deserving of what he was bringing. Jesus says a reckoning is coming. He asked this question to his audience. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? When he comes, what will he do? They refused to yield fruit. They abused and killed his servants. They murdered his own son. What will he do? Now, it's the second Sunday Advent, and you don't want to hear this. 
You want to hear about Him coming, but you want to hear about a happy coming. Come, O come, Emmanuel. Not this coming that's being spoken of here. We want to hear about the good of Jesus' first coming at Advent. We want to hear about the hope of His second coming that we're waiting for. And yet even now, Jesus calls us to reflect on the reckoning that is coming. He's coming. And what will he do when he comes? That's the question that Jesus poses to the chief priests, to the elders, to the Pharisees. And it's the question that we have to ask ourselves as well. Now, we're going to take this a little bit out of order. We're actually going to begin at the ending. We're going to look at the ending of our passage first, and then we're going to circle back and look at the parable. And then finally, we're going to look at that quotation from Psalm 118 that Jesus cites to them and ask what that's all about. So if you're trying to keep this clear in your mind, we're going to look at the bad tenants, and then we're going to look at the vineyard, and then finally, at the cornerstone. But let's start with the bad tenants right at the end of the story. And it seems the bad tenants know who they are. We're told they know who Jesus is talking about. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They knew that these parables were directed at them, at their behavior. The authorities of the city, the authorities of the temple, they were the bad tenants of the parable. They were the ones who were put in charge of the vineyard. They were the ones who refused to yield the fruit of obedience and faith. The ones who abused and killed the master's servants, the prophets. They were the ones who even now are plotting to kill his own son. And so the penalty for this must be clear to them. From their own lips, they pronounce it. Once again, when they hear the story, They speak the judgment, and the judgment condemns them. They say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And then Jesus, translating the meaning, going from the parable to the reality, says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. It's interesting, too, that we return to this idea that they want to act against Jesus, but they can't. They want to arrest him, but they can't. Right? They wouldn't speak against John the Baptist out of fear of the people. We learned earlier in chapter 21. And now they're afraid of the people again because the people regard Jesus as a prophet too, just like John the Baptist. Remember at the beginning of chapter 21 in the triumphal entry when people ask, who is this? The people, the crowd, answers, this is the prophet Jesus. So although they do not understand truly who he is, they hold him in high regard. And because the authorities of the city and the temple fear men, not God, they're afraid to act against him because of what the people would think. So the Levitical priesthood has failed. The priests and scribes and elders, the city itself, The temple at the heart of the city, they all stand condemned. 
in this parable. For what? For what crime? Fruitlessness. Fruitlessness. Like the cursed tree that we saw earlier in the chapter, these men will wither because they've refused to do what they were made to do. They've refused to be what they were made to be. They've refused to glorify who they were made to glorify and to enjoy forever. And they know it. When they hear the parable, they perceive he's speaking of them. They understand that they are the rebels. They are the bad tenants. And they want nothing more than to arrest him and to put him to death. Let's look at the parable, though. Let's see what it is that they recognize themselves in, what story it is that they see themselves participating in. Now, again, this is a parable that takes place in that highly symbolic setting of a vineyard. And the vineyard was made with a purpose in mind. The purpose of the vineyard is to yield fruit. In the parable, we have a sort of symbolic telling of the master's plan, of God's plan, our creator's plan, the way that he designed everything to be. Now, several times, as we've studied Matthew 21, over the course of the last few weeks, we've had reason to go back to a particular passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5. And I want us to do that again. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, and read the way that that prophetic vision opens, there's a description of God making a vineyard. We read these words. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Isn't it striking how closely the parable that Jesus tells here resembles the prophecy that Isaiah relates, even down to the architectural details. In Jesus's parable, the master plants a vineyard and he puts a fence around it. He digs a wine press, just like in Isaiah 5. He also builds a tower, just like in Isaiah 5, the details are startlingly similar. Now, because we keep going back to Isaiah 5, you already know the symbolic identity of the vineyard. Right? Because in Isaiah 5, the meaning of this vineyard is revealed. In Isaiah 5, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So the identity of the vineyard is Israel. And as we've seen Jesus telling stories about vineyards, you've got to keep that in mind, that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and Jesus is now teaching about God's relationship to that physical kingdom that Jesus is, is walking around and seeing has fallen from glory is failing to do what it was made to do and therefore stands condemned. Now, it's not the only instance 
where the Bible uses this kind of metaphorical language to describe Israel. If you look in Psalm chapter 80, Psalm 80, uh, this is verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 80. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So there, God delivering his people out of Egypt, the metaphor used is you've planted a vineyard. You took a vine out of Egypt and you planted it here in this promised land. You cleared the ground for it. In other words, you drove our enemies out so that we could take possession. And here we took deep root and we filled the land. So you see this idea of the vineyard throughout the Old Testament, describing, depicting what God has done in creating this home, this promised land for his people. But if you think about that and what that represents, we can get to like layers upon layers of symbolism. Like if the vineyard symbolizes Israel and what God did in bringing Israel into the promised land, you could also say that even that action of God bringing the people into the promised land and creating a kingdom there had a sort of sign value. It's as if God was recapitulating or reenacting something he had already done before. You could go back to the Garden of Eden and the original mission of humanity itself and find what we could think of as the prototype for this idea of God creating a place for his people to dwell, to cultivate so that they might bear fruit. In Genesis 1.28, when the human race is giving its marching orders, its covenant mandate, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And that idea of being fruitful, of multiplying, of filling the earth is repeated and reiterated as God constantly makes and renews his covenant relation with us. In the successive covenants of the Old Testament, uh, Moa's day and Abraham's, in the days of Moses and Joshua, in the days of David, God is repeating this admonition to go out, to multiply, to be fruitful, to fill the earth. He's also literally replicating that Eden mission in the physical kingdom that he creates where he creates a sort of walled garden of Israel, where his people dwell within and are meant to produce fruit for his glory. Fruit of righteousness, obedience, the fruit of faith, which, of course, they never quite manage to do in perfection. So God creates a vineyard, and like the master in the parable, he gives it to the tenants. And the tenants have one job, to get his fruits, to be fruitful, to render obedience and righteousness. That's what they're for. That's what they've been called to do. But like Adam and Eve, these gardeners did not do what they were made to do. Instead, they plotted rebellion against the master rather than rendering unto him the things that are his. So we see in the parable the master's plan to create a vineyard and to populate it and to have 
people living within it who yield its fruit and its season. But now think about the rebellion of the tenants in the vineyard and what that suggests to us. The tenants abuse and kill the servants. And that's exactly the way the leaders of the nation of Israel have treated God's servants, the prophets. If we jump ahead a little bit to Matthew 23, Jesus makes that connection explicit when he gives his series of woes, which we'll be looking at uh, early next year. He gives one in particular towards the end of Matthew 23 that talks about their shedding the blood of the prophets. This is Matthew 23, starting in verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So it's clear from what Jesus says in Matthew 23, and it's clear from what his audience takes away at the end of Matthew 21, that that these men stand guilty of these very things, that Jesus is holding them accountable for their persecution of his prophets, first and foremost, of course, in this generation, John the Baptist himself. Interestingly, in the parable, Jesus not only points out that the tenants kill the servants and then the son, but also provides a window into their motive, why they do what they do. When the son is sent to them, they reason together. They say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. So in addition to not rendering to the master what is his, they want to take what is not theirs. Essentially, they want to become the masters themselves and make the vineyard their vineyard and not his. And that is the motive for all rebellion against the creator. That, at the heart of it, is the motive for all our disobedience and sin. You go back to Genesis 3, verse 5, and the serpent, when he reasons with Eve, says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then you go to Genesis 11, verse 4, when the Tower of Babel is being constructed, the people counsel with one another and say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, sin by its very nature always disguises its motives and tries to make itself sound 
altruistic. In the serpent's case, when he talks about knowing good and evil, that sounds like a good thing to know. To be able to discern between good and evil seems like useful information, but it's actually a pretext. The important thing here is to be like God, to be able to render judgments for yourself, for you, the creature, to become the creator instead of fulfilling his created purpose for you. The same way at Babel, when they give a rationale for what they're trying to do, it's one that you may find relatable. Um, I know in, in my parents' life, they actually literally did this. They built a big house and built like a little wing of the house for me to dwell in and a little wing of the house for my brother to dwell in. And it was really clever so that we need never move away so that the Bertrands would never be dispersed across the face of the earth, but could just dwell in this little tower that didn't quite touch the heavens, but uh, had that sort of notion to it. And and haven't we all had similar ideas, like keeping the family together, uh, not being dispersed and scattered like that? So you think, okay, sure, the serpent, obviously, he's giving bad advice, but at Babel, aren't they just trying to do something that's basically good? Well, what they're trying to do is actually in direct defiance to the words we've just heard, the commissioning they just received from God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're doing what they're doing so that they don't have to do that. So they don't have to fulfill that purpose, which God had just finished repeating to Noah at the beginning of Genesis 9. So, The rebellion of the tenants in the vineyard and ultimately their killing of the son is a picture of the rebellion of the human race. Like We took the fruit that was not ours to take. We refused to yield to God's good plan. And instead of listening when he sent us prophets, we killed them. And because of our sin, his very son went to the cross. So like the men at the end of Matthew 21, we might hear a story like this and say, I perceive that he's talking about me. I perceive that he's pointing the finger to me. And if he is, what will he do when he comes? If the parable is a picture of human history, then the question that the parable ends with is the question that haunts the human story. What will he do when he comes? Jesus answers that question, but interestingly, he answers it with two actions, not one. It's just that one of the things he says is so chilling that it tends to overshadow the other one. So let's look at both answers. So first, death. Death is one thing he will do. Like the cursed tree, the bad tenants will be punished. But secondly, fruit. The master will raise up new occupants and they will yield fruit. Those are the things he will do when he comes. Yes, he will do justice, but he will also do restoration. Right? Death means punishment, but fruit means restoration and life. The vineyard isn't just vacated and then burned to the ground. The master doesn't say, that was a bad idea. I'll never do that again. Instead, the vineyard is restored and it is repopulated. 
and it is set on a footing to do what it was made to do. The physical city, the physical temple, were in the course of being condemned. But in the same breath, Jesus was promising and announcing a spiritual city and a spiritual temple. From the ethnic nation of the Old Testament to the spiritual body of the New Testament, one age was ending and another was being born. The sacrifices of the temple would soon come to an end, but Jesus' one sacrifice at the cross would bring together people from every kindred, every nation, every tribe, and make them into one body, the church. Which Paul describes this way. He says in Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Which brings us to Psalm 118, to that image of the cornerstone, a cornerstone which Jesus says will crush every rival kingdom. This idea of a cornerstone, a stone laid by God himself, in the Old Testament, this is a messianic image. It's a prophetic image. In Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17, you see that this is an image that God uses to talk about himself laying a sure foundation. Isaiah writes, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. So God is laying a sure foundation in Zion, a precious cornerstone. But that stone also prophetically crushes all rival kingdoms, as Daniel reveals in Daniel chapter 2 when he interprets the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Daniel's prophecy is what Jesus is alluding to when he says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, as we've heard in Ephesians 2, Paul identifies Jesus as the cornerstone of the church. And as we saw last week or the week before, uh, Peter in Acts 2 does this explicitly with Psalm 118. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone. He goes farther. He says, you are the builders who rejected him as well. So, aside from warning us to repent and bear fruit, a warning 
that Jesus has reiterated, that echoes throughout this chapter. What can this parable teach us? There is a clear lesson, I think, which is this, the power of the kingdom. That Jesus entered as king to Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 21. But here at the end of chapter 21, he is once again foreshadowing his coming death. But the warning of the parable and this image from Psalm 118 prevents us from thinking that Jesus, because of his impending death, is somehow a a weak king or that his kingdom is somehow impermanent or fragile. Instead, these words from Psalm 118 tell us that he's a sure foundation and that his is the kingdom that will break all others. But if you're looking for lessons, I think there's an even better one, an even deeper one, sort of buried in the quotation itself. It's the part of the quotation that that isn't much built upon in the New Testament, but is the one, I think, that, that, um, well, fills me with wonder. It's that refrain, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. When you read this parable, don't think that what you've read is a story about a group of tenants who failed to do what they were supposed to do and are then replaced by better tenants who hopefully will do what they should do. Otherwise, we'll be back where we started because the action of the story is not about the work of the tenants. The hope of the future is not about the quality of the tenants. The hope of the future is in the master and what he's doing. It's the master who restores the vineyard. It's the master who fills it with his people. It's the master, not the tenants, who make the land fruitful. Which means that as the tenants, our primary job, our calling, is to marvel at what he does. Our task, your mission, if you choose to accept it, your chief end, if you will, is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Because this is the Lord's doing. And it should be marvelous in our eyes. Back in Psalm 80, the psalm that talks about God bringing the vine out of Egypt and planting it, there's a refrain that is repeated again and again. It's this, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. When you ask yourself the question, what will he do when he comes? Remember that prayer. What will he do when he comes? He will restore us and save us. As you seek to glorify God, as you seek to bear fruit, as you seek to marvel at his ways, then let that prayer of those ancient people be your prayer to restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved and bear fruit. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.